right, well then, I'll get started. Um, today we are going to continue through Vavilov, uh, go through finally the application to Mr. Vavilov of this new framework, uh, go through the descent uh, in some detail because I think this is a descent that is, uh, is more important than some other descents because I think it will be a bit of a caution against an over-reading of Babylon, and it may um, give court some comfort in sort of maintaining as much deference as they can while still applying this robust reasonableness review the majority talks about. Then we'll get into the, uh, the Bell Canada case. And if there's time, I will then get into um, the Paul Daly article that we read for today. And then for next class, we'll finish up whatever we don't finish today. And we'll talk about the, um, the competing lines of jurisdiction case, the Horrocks case, which, frankly, on my first reading is a bit of a dud. It doesn't really change much. So the highlighted section for you to have a look at for Friday is relatively small, so it should be pretty con uh, contained reading. And we'll finish up standard of review, do a bit of a review on Friday, and then I'll hopefully have time to introduce the idea of the intersection of the charter and administrative law before you do your readings. Because it's you know probably one of the most difficult areas that we cover to wrap your head around. Um, I still think it's one of the areas that needs the most thinking and is going to probably be the center of the most tweaking. So, last class we finished by briefly watching um, the submissions of Professor Audrey Macklem at the uh, Supreme Court of Canada where she advocated for a um, sort of an earned deference model where the courts would defer and apply a reasonableness review so long as the reasons were uh, of a sufficient quality. And if the reasons were deficient, they would not defer at all and they would do a pure correctness analysis. And she encouraged the court to substitute its own view for whatever the judge determined uh, would be the right outcome. And we saw the court grapple with this and say, well, hold on, you know, Professor Macklem, what gives me the right to decide this? And, and that's an idea we talked about you know, throughout the course when we're talking about the role of the courts on judicial review is merely to make sure that the executive stays within its boundaries and the actual substantive answering of the question is ordinarily entrusted to the uh, executive, to the statutory decision maker. But we talked about last class also how when you're a court of inherent jurisdiction, there really isn't anything you can't do. You're a section 96 court. So are you allowed to just go in and substitute your own decision? Well, technically, yes, because you can make any order that you want to. And so you have this tension where the courts don't want to step in and substitute their own decision. They don't want to take up these matters as a matter of first impression and decide them anew. Um, but they do have the power to do so. And so you've got to keep in mind this distinction between you know can and should. And 
again, the, the word that wants to come to mind is justiciability. You know, should the court do something, not can they do it? And so when we think about remedy in judicial review, you, you really want to start with this presumption that the ordinary result is going to be to quash and remit, but you want to have in mind that there is a power to just decide the matter, to just decide the matter and make it conclusive and final. And the court in Babylon talks about when that is appropriate. And they say that is when a particular decision is inevitable and remitting would serve no useful purpose. And they spoke of issues such as delay of the whole administrative proceeding, the urgency, the nature of the regime, and the opportunity for the decision maker to weigh in hadn't already happened as being things that the court might consider in balancing whether it's an appropriate case to in fact decide that there is an inevitable outcome and to substitute its own decision for that of the decision maker and put an end to the administrative process altogether. It's a bit of a review, I touched on that last week, but I want to make sure it's fresh in our minds because when we talk about the application of the law to Babylon, to me, that's probably the most interesting thing they did was they decided in this case, we are going to simply determine the matter once and for all. We're not going to send it back for redetermination. And so moving into finally, you know, an application to Mr. Babylon, now that we're at the third lecture, we can finally talk about him. And as you may remember, the question before the court is around a decision made within the immigration context to quash his citizenship registration on the basis that his parents were spies when he was born. So the court has this, you know, really fascinating set of facts before it, and it's got this brand new framework it's just laid out, and it goes about the task of trying to model how to apply this framework to a set of facts. And the court, I think, can give itself a big pat on the back with how quickly they can dispel the standard of review question. They don't spend hardly any time on debating the standard of review. They simply say, okay, the standard of review is reasonableness. Um, the presumption is reasonableness, and none of the exemptions from the reasonableness standard constitutional questions, rule of law concerns, and a competing tribunal jurisdiction. None of this is at play, so we can just move into an application of the reasonableness standard. And you'll remember again, of course, the fundamental question of what is reasonable here turned on whether the fact that Mr. Vavilov, when he was born in Canada, uh, had parents who, you know, the question was whether or not his parents would qualify under the statute as a diplomatic or consular officer or other representative or employee in Canada of a foreign government. So it's a fundamentally a question of interpreting that provision and applying that interpretation to the case of Mr. Vavilov. And the court notes first the letter from the registrar that said, you know, sorry, Mr. Vavilov, we're quashing your decision, did not provide analysis or interpretation. But similar to Baker, 
There was a report that was disclosed, an underlying report from a junior analyst, and that underlying report was such that the court was able to glean the reasons from it, and to say those qualified as the reasons. So if we remember the sort of procedural history, interestingly enough, the federal court applied a correctness standard based on going through a Dunsmuir analysis. They said this is a correctness standard. I actually haven't read the federal court decision. I couldn't tell you the reasoning upon which they got to a correctness standard. They apply a correctness standard, though, and they say that it was correct. So they agree with the junior analyst's um, interpretation. So the Supreme Court of Canada is like, boy, did you get that wrong. Not only did you apply the wrong standard, if you apply the more deferential standard, you still have to overturn it because, you know, spoiler, they found it was unreasonable. Um, in essence, the way they found the, the the basis upon which they found the matter to be unreasonable is they said, when you look at the statute, it's plain language, and you look at the statute as a whole, when you look at the broader legislative scheme, i.e. not just the Citizenship Act, but also the Foreign Missions and International Organizations Act. So again, if you remember, we talked about the statutory scheme as a whole and the broader legislative scheme. This sometimes doesn't entail just one statute. There may be other statutes that come to bear on a reasonable interpretation. And here, this Foreign Missions and International Organizations Act, as well as the treaty, which the Foreign Missions and International Organizations Act implemented, uh, both were interpretive tools the court said need to be considered and which point to the outcome that they say is inevitable. Um, they speak about the jurisprudence interpreting the statute, and they speak about the possible consequences of accepting the registrar's interpretation. And they say, look, all of this points to a clear and overwhelming case that what matters is whether the person, the parent, has diplomatic privileges. If you have diplomatic privileges, then, when your child is born in Canada, they're not going to be a citizen. It makes sense, you know. You, you, my cousin is his his wife is in the uh, Canadian Foreign Service. They're in Germany right now. He has twins. God help him. And had those two, they were born right before they left for Germany. But had they been born in Germany, would it really make sense? They're Canadian or they're German citizens. Like they would only be there for a year or two and then they would leave and they'd have no ties to Germany and they'd have clear ties to Canada. So the court says, no, listen, diplomatic privileges are the people who are trying to be caught by this exception to citizenship. Clearly the spies didn't have diplomatic privileges. And so the court says, when you properly read this, the only reasonable way to interpret this act is that it is, applies to people with diplomatic privileges. Because you don't have diplomatic privileges, your parents didn't, there is no useful purpose in sending this back to the citizenship officer for redetermination. 
um, you know, in essence, you have gone through this lengthy process. It's a question of really fundamental importance to you. Further delay is prejudicing you. You know, you don't have the benefits currently of being a citizen. And so the, they say, in this situation, we have an inevitable result, and we are going to substitute a decision, you know, effectively granting you the citizenship um, that you, uh, that you deserve, or I think I, I suppose technically um, setting aside the quashing of your citizenship by this diplomatic officer and reinstating your you know citizenship in good standing. So the application, uh, the re there are a couple of reasons to remember the facts of Avalog. One is of course it's such a fascinating uh, story that it should help this case stick in your mind long term. I, I suspect. If you never touch a Minla again after you know, December, whatever our exam date is, probably 10, 15 years from now, you'll still remember the facts of Babylon just because it is that fascinating. Um, but more importantly, for present purposes at least, is to be able to remember, well, why is it that the court substituted its decision and didn't remit this matter back to the decision maker? And they say, again, it's because the only reasonable interpretation is that this provision was intended to apply to those with diplomatic privileges and not to those who don't have such privileges. Um, the court, though, was careful to say, look, what we're saying is, at a bare minimum, this must only apply to families with diplomatic privileges. That said, we're not trying to offer a final and conclusive interpretation of the statutory scheme or even this provision. You know, any further nuance, et cetera, in how that's applied, if there might be people with diplomatic privileges to whom it didn't apply to, uh, these other questions, we offer no opinion on. Those aren't before us, and we don't purport to step in and offer a final and authoritative interpretation of this provision once and for all. Rather, what we merely do is we say, there's a class of people to whom this cannot apply, that is, people with no diplomatic privileges. Mr. Vavilov's family fell within that class, and therefore, we have an inevitable decision. Are any questions about the interpretation and application here, or the the facts. All right, so let's move into the dissent of Justices Abella and Karakatsanis. Um, it's an interesting pairing. Justice Abella is, you know, the best in at least as a person. She's fantastic. She uh, she was a judge when she was like in her late thirties. She was pregnant when she was a judge with her with one of her kids. Um, you know, has basically been a judge for 40 years and has you know, written a ton of important decisions. And really, she took over administrative law at the Supreme Court of Canada level for the period between Dunsmuir and Vavilov, where she was writing the important cases. Her ideas were getting a majority or even a unanimous court behind them. And the one thing you want to think about when you think about Abella 
is strong deference to administrative decision makers coming at it from an access to justice lens. Um, justice Carrick Katsanis, you know, it's sort of a different story. Um, she was appointed by Stephen Harper, and it was a very controversial appointment. I'm not sure if any of you would have been following law very closely at that time, but she was seen as a, she was on the Ontario Court of Appeal, so, you know, uh, the, the very important appellate court, obviously, and exceptionally good people are on that court. But she was seen as, as a very junior member of the court and hadn't distinguished herself yet as a jurist. And um, there was some concern that her her spouse was a big conservative donor, and so there and there was uh, ties between that family and sort of the uh, conservative party. And so it was a controversial appointment with a lot of concerns of are we sliding into a sort of American model of hyper-partisan Supreme Court of Canada appointments. And um, you know the reality is, I think, that as a judge at the court, she has been uh, not partisan. She's, she's been a very um, difficult to predict judge who's done things that would fall all over the political spectrum at different times. But she seems to now have really taken up the mantle from Justice Abella as the champion of deference on the court. So there's a bit of a passing of the torch, um, the torch of extreme deference, I guess, between Justice Abella and Justice Caracasanis in writing these joint, I, I will probably call them dissenting reasons again by accident. They are concurring, they concur in the results, but their framework is, uh, has a strong criticism of the majority. So, um, interesting pairing, to be sure. Justice of uh, Karakatsanis was herself an administrative decision maker, though, which may also um, you know, help understand where she's coming from in this deference. Um, it's not always the case that familiarity with the administrative process leads you to want to be more deferential. Sometimes you get frustrated and say they're all idiots. But that's neither here nor there. So, Vavilov, concurring reasons, um, doesn't disagree with everything the majority did, not by a long shot. They agree that you start with the presumption of reasonableness. They agree that we jettison the true questions of jurisdiction idea that well, there are true questions of jurisdiction. There's no useful distinction between that and any other question that you are allowed to review uh, and set aside an administrative decision as a result of. But I would say they really have three main points that they fairly forcefully attack the majority on. Uh, insufficient respect for precedent, so a stare decisis point. The move away from deference on statutory appeals. And the elevation of errors within the reasoning process, even if they don't lead to an unreasonable substantive outcome, as a standalone basis to set aside an administrative decision. So those are the three broad areas of critique, and I want to go through them all and 
a bit of detail, um, actually not strictly in that order. Um, yeah. Uh, I just have a question about the facts. Yeah, yeah. I'm just, I'm just trying to try this idea of having an inevitable outcome yeah. to the jurisdiction. So uh, when the court said that there's a class of people to which the statute does not apply, mm -hmm. did the court mean that the tribunal did not have jurisdiction at all? Or does this mean that they just exercised their unreasonable? Uh, well, it means that they didn't have jurisdiction to make the order that they did. And that order was an unreasonable sort of interpretation of their statute. But they. They had no jurisdiction to quash the citizenship of somebody who's born in Canada, whose parents did not have diplomatic privileges. So you could frame it sort of either, oops, you could frame it kind of either way. You could say that they didn't have the jurisdiction to make that type of an order. You certainly could say, do they have jurisdiction over citizenship matters? Yes. But did they exercise that jurisdiction over citizenship matters reasonably? No. And your question kind of gets at this fundamental tie that there isn't really a difference between saying you had jurisdiction but you exercised it unreasonably and you didn't have jurisdiction. Because if you had jurisdiction but you exercised it unreasonably, you didn't have jurisdiction to be unreasonable. So it's, it kind of gets at the way it really is all jurisdictional in some fundamental way. It's a good, good point though, good question. Um, okay, so the some of the criti criticism from the dissent or the concurring reasons, um, you know, I found to be uh, kind of fun to read and sort of flowery, but at times almost over the top. Like the dissent or the concurring reasons say the majority's reasons are an encomium for correctness and a eulogy for deference. Does anybody know what encomium means? Is that a word that anybody's familiar with? Me neither. I, I looked it up. It's a speech or piece of writing that praises someone or something highly. It seems like it's most often used moderately because it's the name of a Led Zeppelin tribute album. But what cracks me up about it is how much of this decision is talking about intelligibility of reasons for the benefit of the parties themselves? And then the court can't help but use words that like all of us have to look up. It's kind of ironic. But leaving that aside, um, the dissent or the concurring reasons, I think, hopefully when you had a look through them, you got a sense as to the sort of foundation we laid at the beginning of the course and how it still comes to bear. Because the dicey, you know, versus a uh, more inclusive rule of law framework is very much front and center in Justice Abella's and Justice Karakasanis's reasoning. And, you know, in essence, one of the uh, strongest barbs they throw at the majority is that they're being sort of dicey or dicey-ian in their analysis. Um, and they, you know, go through that history of admin law and review that we, that we took the time to go through, and I'm glad we did because you see it come up and over and over again. And they talk about how, look, the history has been 
a move away from tying the rule of law into the rule of courts. But they say, majority, you're taking a step backwards into this rule of courts by decreasing the deference that is being owed to these tribunals. Um, and perhaps the, the point that they, um, that much of their criticism of the majority stems from is that decision that we talked about where the majority moved away from expertise as being the foundation for deference. If you remember, the majority said, in essence, we don't have to worry about comparative expertise between me and the tribunal, but rather the majority bases deference on structure. It's the very fact the legislature decided to give it to this person in the first place that justifies deference without even having to think about expertise, which only comes in later when we're applying the reasonableness standard. And the, and the, the concurring reason said, no, we don't agree that you could jettison expertise from the project of determining the standard of review. And where I think this criticism that ignoring expertise leads to problems with the standard of review comes most you know, to the fore, and I think where their criticism has the most sort of weight to it is in the move away from um, deference on statutory appeals the correctness on questions of law on statutory appeals completely removes the concept of expertise from the setting of the standard of review. It doesn't matter if that statutory appeal is from a body with significant expertise. So they, they say, look, your structural critique or your structural view that delegation to an executive decision maker from the legislature um, is a signal of deference ignores the question of why the delegation happens at all. And they say chief amongst those reasons is expertise. And then at paragraph 233, they have a, a very good um, lengthy passage, but I'm going to go through it because it really underscores their critique on this expertise point and explains or perhaps answers some of the difficulties with expertise I had articulated, you know, those ideas of, well, the, the judge is familiar with human rights, aren't they? So why can't they uh, you know, interpret the human rights code? So what they write, Abella and Karakatsanis write, is all of this equips administrative decision makers to tackle questions of law arising from their mandates. In interpreting their enabling statutes, for example, administrative actors may have a particularly astute appreciation for the on-the-ground consequences of particular legal interpretations of statutory context. 
of the purposes that a provision or a legislative scheme are meant to serve, and of specialized terminology used in their administrative setting. Coupled with this court's acknowledgement that legislative provisions often admit of multiple reasonable interpretations, the advantages stemming from specialization and expertise provide a robust foundation for deference to administrative decision makers on legal questions within their mandate. So they're going right back to QP and saying, hey, there's two different interpretations. Both are reasonable. Who's in a better position to pick from amongst the reasonable interpretations as to the one that should govern going forward? Is it the person who deals with this stuff day in, day out, every day? Or is it the court who parachutes in and considers this once and never will look back again? And they're saying, you know, it's the former. And they quote on this point from Professor H.W. Uh, Arthurs. I'm not familiar with this professor, but I think this passage is excellent. Uh, here she says, there's no reason to believe that a judge who reads a particular regulatory statute once in his life, perhaps in worst case circumstances, can read it with greater fidelity to legislative purpose than an administrator who is sworn to uphold that purpose, who strives to do so daily, and is well aware of the effect upon the purpose of the various alternate interpretations. And I think that, you know, that point is, is very well made. And, and it is so true that if you're a judge, um, and you know, when you are practicing, you can find out what judge is going to hear your case uh, usually a few days in advance. Not always. Sometimes you get, you know, Madam Justice TBA on the sheet and you only find out morning of. But oftentimes you can find out who your judge is going to be ahead of time. So what do you do? You know, you call your friends and you plug it into Canly or Quicklaw or whatever service you have to see if they've decided any cases, you know, related to the topic that you're going to argue. And very often, I will get a judge, and not only will they not have um, done a, a case that's you know, in the same statutory context as the admin law case I'm going to do, but they may have only done two or three admin law cases in their whole career. Some judges may um, have a criminal law background, and you know, maybe you do two or three lengthy murder trials, and you're five years in as a judge, and you've touched admin law twice. Uh, you know, is that judge really better positioned to understand and appreciate the nuances of the Residential Tenancy Act than is a judge who has, or sorry, a, a decision maker within that scheme who's been doing it day in, day out? You know, it's a fair question. So, you know, to me, the, the this, this is the argument that probably um, most strongly resonates in their critique when you're talking about this move to uh, the statutory appeal being on the appellate standards and the jettisoning of deference. That, hold on, if there's multiple reasonable interpretations, doesn't it make more sense to let the administrative body choose which one they're going to proceed with? Um, the dissent or the concurring reasons you know, goes on to have a little more fun piling on Dicey. They go at paragraph 241 to 
you know, I think have a, a strong passage that, um, that really should hearken back to that debate that we talked about right at the beginning of the course when they say the rule of law is not the rule of courts. You know, that's a direct rejection of Dicey's worldview. A pluralist conception of the rule of law recognizes that courts are not the exclusive guardians of law and that others in the justice arena have shared responsibility for its development, including administrative decision makers. Dunsmuir embraced this more inclusive view of the rule of law by acknowledging that the court-centric conception of the rule of law had to be reined in by acknowledging that courts don't have a monopoly on deciding all questions of law. And then as discussed in Dunsmuir, the rule of law is understood as meaning that administrative decision makers make legal determinations within their mandate and not that only judges decide questions of law with an unrestricted license to substitute their opinions for those of administrative actors through correctness review. So you get this you know, forceful, hey, we all agree that we're not Diceans anymore, that we don't have this court-centric rule of law, and yet your framework has taken the question of which reasonable interpretation should be uh, proceeded with away from the decision maker, giving it back to the courts, which you know flows against that fundamental project. Um, they have a nice, a nice little Easter egg for our class. They they note that the rule of law demands access to the courts, and they cite to our textbook on that point. Um, and we're going to be reading that past that that. Um, chapter, I think it's actually the last reading for the course, uh, Justice Sawson on access to the courts and rule of law. Um, so, you know, if you're thinking about the dissent, uh, I said there are those three criticisms and the second one being the movement to this correctness on statutory appeals. And I think you can kind of put that as your sort of start probably most strong and difficult for the majority to necessarily answer criticism of their process. Uh, it, it's almost sort of the, you know, the cost of this idea that you're gonna have greater certainty and fidelity to legislative intent by taking this appellate approach when the legislature uses the word appeal and they just you know, don't really have a compelling answer for why a judge is better positioned to choose between reasonable interpretations. The um, concurring reasons get a few more zingers in on that point. Um, they point out that the majority has this uh, rhetorical sort of device where they say, ah, the legislature doesn't speak in vain and if we treat an appeal just like any other judicial review, we have read the word appeal, in essence, out of the statute. And we, we've, we've given that no meaning whatsoever. And they know, like, yeah, but a few paragraphs later, you say, yeah, we'll ignore privative clauses entirely in the analysis. So you're ignoring one thing and saying that you can't ignore another thing. They're saying you're, you're not consistent on that legislature doesn't speak in vain point, and so you know we are not concerned with that. 
Um, the next thing that they, you know, I'm moving out of that criticism of the statutory appeal framework, and I'm moving into the how to apply the reasonableness standard, and in particular, the idea that problems with the reasons themselves, even if the fundamental outcome is reasonable, can itself justify overturning a decision. And this is, again, a place where the, the concurring judges say this is a dramatic change in the fundamental nature of judicial review and not a wise one, and one that leads to less deference. They say, as we've said, basically, consistently, judicial review is not a treasure hunt for error. And if there is flaws in the reasoning process, but nevertheless a reasonable outcome has been arrived at, that remains something we should defer to. If the totality of the decision is reasonable. And so they say we are not prepared to depart from the proposition set out consistently by the court since Dunsmuir that flaws in the reasons in and of themselves are not grounds for judicial review. So if you're cataloging, you want to think, okay, what's the, what's the points of criticism? It's A, the statutory appeal move to correctness um, ignores the expertise of the statutory decision maker. B, we are now going to invite judicial review just from the reasons, even if the outcome is reasonable, and that's inconsistent with precedent and a bad move. It's going to lead to more judicial review. It's going to lead to um, uh, less certainty, more cost, etc., etc. And then finally, sort of overarchingly, they say, listen, you have gone well beyond what we set out to do in Babylon in reconsidering these two components of administrative law. At paragraph um, 229, they talk about you know, what, what they saw Vavilov being all about, or, or these three, these two cases being all about. And they say, for decades, our standard of review jurisprudence has been clear and unwavering about the foundational role of specialized expertise and the limited role of statutory rights of appeal. Where confusion persists, it concerns the relevance of the contextual factors in Dunsmuir the meaning of true questions of jurisdiction, and how best to conduct a reasonableness review. That was the backdrop against which these appeals were heard and argued. And they say, but rather than ushering in a simplified next act, these appeals have been used to rewrite the whole script, 
reassigning to the courts the starring role Dicey ordained a century ago. So they say, listen, we had an important but limited project here. We were going to clarify these contextual factors in Dunsmuir, and I think we all agreed we're going to move to just a strict presumption of reasonableness with few exceptions. We were going to give better guidance on how to deal with, um, uh, with reasonable review, and we were going to answer once and for all whether these true questions of jurisdiction meant anything. And that's an awful lot. And, and that would have been a very helpful addition to the jurisprudence. But instead, you have gone and you have overruled settled law, settled recent law, concerning statutory appeals and the relevancy of them, and concerning whether you can just bring a judicial review from the reasons, even if the substantive outcome is reasonable. And they say that is too far, and that is not justifiable in light of the need for certainty and predictability in this court's own jurisprudence. We ought not to lightly overturn significant amounts of jurisprudence. And and they have a fairly striking paragraph. I wish I made a note of it, but I'm sure you can find it. Where they say, these are the recent decisions of this court you have just implicitly overruled. And it's like half a page of of citations. And I mean, if you, um, you know, if you get a chance to, you know, to argue a Supreme Court of Canada case, you know, one of the hardest things to do, certainly, is to try to tell them they should overrule a past decision. They're very reluctant to do so. Um, you know, stare decisis is extremely important. And while they are not bound by their own decisions, because it's a horizontal stare decisis, they usually are very reluctant to depart from them. And they say, look at all of these ones that you've, that you've overturned. And they say, and you know what? I had to kind of dig into some of these decisions because you want to know how important the existence of a statutory appeal was before you elevated it to the you know, determining factor? Well, they didn't even mention it. It would exist in some of these statutory schemes, and we would apply judicial review to that. And we wouldn't even mention it existed. That's, that's how unimportant it was. So they, that's, I think, a good way to underscore the rather striking elevation of statutory appeal to you know, not just an important factor, but a determinative factor on the standard of review. And then they also point out a pretty interesting thing, which is, OK, let's think about every case where there's been a judicial review brought and there's a statutory appeal mechanism and there is more than one reasonable outcome but a reviewing court just said Man, the interpretation of the tribunal is reasonable well you have invited 
all of those cases to be relitigated now because every one of those decisions where the court merely says the decision or the interpretation of the reviewing or of the uh, administrative body is reasonable, you know, hasn't answered the question of whether it's correct. So they anticipate sort of a flood of relitigation of matters that they had thought were settled. So they say, you know, not only are you upsetting the apple cart by overruling these previous decisions, you're inviting new litigation and a bunch of it in these statutory appeal contexts. So broadly, that is the criticism of the majority by the dissent. Um, I think it's useful for understanding the potential flaws in the Vavilov analysis. And I, maybe it's unfair to call them potential flaws. You might call them trade-offs more accurately that if you're going to provide some certainty with respect to perhaps um, you know, statutory appeals, we get this correctness, we don't have to worry too much about more than that. You get a nice certain framework that does make intuitive sense and is easy to apply and that you can say, well, there is an appeal and you can um, apply appellate standards to it. But the, you know, these, these criticisms will, will help you understand what was lost in making that decision. And I also think that the, the strength of the sort of call to preserve deference will probably resonate in how judges apply their reasonableness analysis coming out of the majority reasons. And we talked last week about how when you have so many contextual factors that you're looking at in the context of assessing whether something's reasonable, it really starts to feel like you have to decide the case, um, you know, or, or the, the scope of what's reasonable is going to really narrow, and the judge's conception of what is correct is going to sort of sneak in through the veil of reasonableness to be what really moves the judge to defer or not to defer. And I think that the strong articulation of sort of why defer and the, the slippery slope, as it were, towards this court-centric uh, approach, you know, that may give a judge a bit more pause before they really embark on a project of, um, you know, deciding a matter anew. I tell you, it's hard though. Like, I did a court of appeal case that I lost recently, and I was arguing, and the, me and the courts went back and forth, and the court just kept saying, but this is the right way to interpret it. And I said, that's a reasonable way to interpret it, but it's not the only reasonable one. And I don't need you to tell me what you like. I need you to tell me what's wrong with what the judge, what the administrative decision maker did. And they, they just, we were running in circles. Uh, and as the Court of Appeal, I thought they'd be, frankly, a little better at this. And they, um, you know, and the reasons, they never really told me what was wrong with the decision maker's decision, but they just, in essence, did a correctness review. So it... It happens, um, but you know, I think you want to be armed with not just the fact of deference, but the why of deference when you're making your arguments. And I, I should have taken a step back and said, look, you know, we need to get more to the foundation of judicial review to understand what your task is, 
you know, how that's been articulated by the court, not presume necessarily the court's going to be fully armed with the full understanding of judicial review. And this dissent is a good sort of touchstone to come back to for a robust defense of deference. And I, I almost see the dissent in Vavilov, um, you know, best illustrated through the Bell Canada case, which I think I'll turn to now, and which we're actually moving more quickly today, which is nice. And I think we probably should be able to get through what I wanted to get through today. Um, so we'll, we'll go through the Bell case. Um, you know, actually, let's take our break before I get into Bell. We'll come back at 11.30 and we'll get into the Bell case. All right, let's get back to it. Sorry, I misplaced my notes. There they are. All right, so as I said, I think that the minority's um, critique on the statutory appeal point, and perhaps more broadly, is well illustrated by the reasons in the Bell NFL case. And just so we have the process entirely clear on what happened here, there were three decisions that were released at the exact same time. Canada Post, Bell, and Vavilov. Uh, Bell and Vavilov were heard together. Canada Post was heard either shortly before or shortly after. Um, nobody knew which was going to be the leading case. You know, we might be talking about the Bell approach if they had just put the analysis in the Bell reasons instead of the Vavilov reasons. Um, but, you know, there it is. So the Bell case is of uh, sort of much less import. But what it is interesting for is it's directly in a, t a, a chance to see how the statutory appeal rule works in practice. So what you have here is um, a Super Bowl ads, right? And probably all familiar with how for some people the ads are as big of an attraction as the game and are certainly part of the spectacle of the Super Bowl. And we probably also are aware that in Canada, you know, you don't get those, those ads traditionally. You get just fairly routine ads during the Super Bowl. So I can't believe that the CRTC like thought we need to make sure <laughs> that you get to see those US ads, but they did. Uh, they decided to um, invoke a rule, or they have a rule that allows for simultaneous substitution, which is the, just the process by which the uh, network can take a feed from another jurisdiction, you know, cut out during the commercials, substitute in its own commercials, then go back to the main feed. And the rule allowing for substitute, um, for uh, simultaneous substitution, was what was 
invoked by the networks to be able to say, okay, we're not going to show those U.S. ads, we're going to sell our own ads at inflated prices during the Super Bowl. But the CRTC decided, nope, you know, we want to see what, what Pepsi's got cooked up for this year. So we're going to make a rule exempting the Super Bowl from the simultaneous substitution regime. Um, they determined that the ads were an integral element of the event. So there's a, uh, a statutory appeal provision within the Canadian Radio and Telecommunications Act, the CRTC's Act, which allows for an appeal to the federal court of this sort of a decision. And of course, the uh, Bell, the provider, who's going to lose probably a fairly significant amount of money by not being able to substitute its own ads, invokes that and seeks to have this decision overturned on the statutory appeal. Now, of course, at that time, a statutory appeal is, in essence, a judicial review. And this is the kind of thing that would be you know, very well expected to be done on a reasonableness standard under a Dunsmuir approach. But when you get the Vavilov framework applied, you get correctness, of course. The court determines that we have a question of law, and therefore a correctness framework must be applied. And specifically, the question of law is the scope of the CRTC's power under Section 91H of the Act. And that provision says, in part, the CRTC may, in furtherance of its objects, so tying in the statutory object right into the language of the provision, H, require any licensee who is authorized to carry on a distribution undertaking to carry on such terms and conditions as the CRTC deems appropriate programming services specified by the CRTC. So in essence, the CRTC said, okay, programming services means we can tell you what you have to show. And we're saying the programming service you're showing is the Super Bowl inclusive of the ads, and you have to show that in its totality. Bell, on the other hand, says, no, no, no. What this provision is aimed at is not individual programs and letting you say what parts of programs can or cannot be simultaneously substituted out. But this is simply saying that we can require that you carry, you know, in essence, a network. And the example given is um, APTN, like Aboriginal People's Television Network, is something that the CRTC has mandated that uh, cable providers offer. And so it's, you know, it's on your package whether the cable operator would choose to include it otherwise or not. So that's the fundamental question that's before the court is, does this 91H apply only to um, requiring you carry an entire network, a whole package of programming? Or can it require that the network you know, carry a specific program or a specific program in its entirety? And 
I think you could see here how the standard of review could really matter. Is it unreasonable to interpret that provision as allowing the CRTC to make decisions about a single program? That's a much different ask than saying, well, what's the correct of those two interpretations? And so the majority does a ordinary statutory interpretation expertise, just like you would see in any other case where a court is called upon to interpret a statute. They look at the ordinary interpretation of the language, the scheme of the act as a whole, and to its purposes. And they say, no, this was never intended to target specific programs. This was always about or ensuring that you know, the CRTC could demand specific networks be on a, a package. And so having interpreted it that way, there's no need for a room for deference. You know, appeal allowed, uh, you're not allowed to do this CRTC. So the dissent says, well, what do we say? In essence, it's all come to life. The CRTC, they say, surely is an expert tribunal when it comes to interpreting and applying these telecommunication laws. And we have jettisoned deference to them on the basis of their expertise. And now we, the courts, who have no great deep understanding of the radio telecommunications regime, are mandating that a particular result be followed. And what is this, if not a court-centered rule of law, come to life? And they conclude, I think, in a sort of a powerful paragraph that you might want to retain as a sort of a good articulation of the fundamental difference in task for a litigant when there's a correctness or reasonableness review being offered. Paragraph 97, they say Bell and the NFL's burden was not only to show that their competing interpretation of section 91H was reasonable, but also that the CRTC's interpretation was unreasonable. That they have not done. Deferential review of the decision and administrative context satisfy us that the CRTC reasonably interpreted Section 91H of the Broadcasting Act and that its Super Bowl order was reasonable and defensible in light of the facts and law. We would dismiss the appeals. So I don't think you need to overread or worry extensively about the Bell and NFL case, but I want you to retain it as an example of this concern that when you move to a correctness review, especially when it's from a tribunal with clear expertise in interpreting a particular statute, which they more or less always will have, you have moved the task for a litigant away from showing that their interpretation was wrong and towards just convincing the court to accept a different interpretation.
So it's a illustrative case, I think, most helpfully. Beyond that, it's um, probably you know, chiefly going to be remembered as just a case that came out at the same time as Vavilov. Um, and a case that certainly would have gone a different way, at least in the standard of review on the pre-Babylon framework. All right, so, yeah. Just a quick comment in terms of <clears throat> the dissent. I, I don't think it's really fair to say that they've completely jettisoned expertise. Um, and I don't think that the majority is being unreasonable in their analysis. If you always had a reasonableness analysis with statutory interpretation, could not that administrative body, I mean, again, they've got expertise, but they also have their own interest as a regulatory body. Um, and could that regulatory body not, over time, interpret their own statutes to give themselves more and more and more power? Yeah. Um, and yeah. you can see, like, in the past, this was a huge jump in power, right? They could say, okay, you can't run this show, you can't run this show. This time block has to be this much time, right? It's a huge jump from you have to have this channel to we get to control how you run your channels and what you show on your channels. Oh, yeah. Um, and so is that not very much a fundamental issue that the court should be involved with hmm. rather than just saying, okay, they've got expertise, hands off. No, that, that's really well said. And, and I think an excellent articulation of um, you know the, the stakes of this case or maybe they seem light because it's Super Bowl ads, who cares? But if it's, um, this show is, uh, is showing an LGBTQ family in a positive light, and we don't like that, so let's get that show off the air. It's a much different, I mean, not the charter issue there, obviously, but you know, you can see pernicious uses of this power. And so um, your, your point that uh, will a tribunal not have an incentive to claim for itself more jurisdiction, I think is well made and well taken. I mean, I think as a general rule, absolutely, they, they, they would tend to. Uh, so, you know, pointing out the reasoning why, despite the, the probably more expertise in the CRTC interpretation of its act, um, there still is good reason to, to be careful in this type of an area. You know, I think is, is a well-made and well-taken point, and certainly one that um, that I think maybe gets at where I want to go to next, which is we're going to ping-pong a little bit away from these sort of criticisms of Vavilov into perhaps a more positive spin on what it's done and how it's been applied since, drawing upon the work of uh, Professor Paul Daly, who is that you know, fairly delightful um, Irish fellow that we saw introduce um, uh, Christy Ford last last class. So, the art there's two daily articles that I'm going to talk about. One of them is the one I had you read, the Culture of Justification art, uh, article. The other one came out like last week, uh, and so I, I had a look at it. I'm not going to have you read it, but. There's a few interesting things to take out of it because he's looking at Vavilov nearly two years on with more of an empirical lens to see, well, where have the problems actually been in applying the framework? Um, and 
specifically, has there been this erosion of deference is another thing that he talks about. So um, very much responsive to the dissent's concerns. Um, so for the culture of justification, that is, I think, a, a great frame to have in your minds for, you know, what really is the strong import of Vavilov? And it's, there, there had previously been um, reference made to a culture of justification in administrative law. But Vavilov firmly entrenches and enshrines it as, uh, you know, as the guiding light and the guiding post for which you're going to review these administrative decisions. And I think if you want to be a bit cute and semantic in your head, you could think Vavilov asks not whether the decision is justifiable but whether it's justified. And there is a distinction there, of course. Um, a decision can be justifiable, but may not yet have been justified to the parties. Previously, that wasn't seen as a standalone problem. post Vavilov, you know, it is elevated into a potential ground for judicial review. Um, on this culture of justification, I'd forgotten I did this, but I did an interesting podcast um, that I have a link to in the notes that was also called Culture of Justification Post Vavilov. I think I speak for about 30 seconds, but there's a uh, really interesting woman who is our guest, who was the um, law officer at the Ontario Court of Appeal and is a professor at University of Toronto or an adjunct profit Toronto. And she does much of her work in training judges and administrative decision makers on writing and talks about sort of how to apply a Vavilov justification approach within the project of writing reasons. So it's a quite an interesting one. I listened to it again the other day and I was, she was just fascinating on it. Um, so the culture of justification Professor Daly points out, uh, seems to have been first identified or described or articulated in a uh, paper by, um, I'll probably butcher the name, but H.E.N. Murenik, who said, a culture of justification is one in which every exercise of power is expected to be justified, in which the leadership given by government rests on the cogency of the case offered in defense of its decisions, not the fear inspired by the force at its command. And it's like, uh, you can't help but think about like bringing up kids. Um, by the way, my son was like, that was super boring. He was not, not into the lecture last week. Um, But if you think about, you know, the why, because I told you so as a parent versus the why, because this, this, and this reason, which lead to more whys and which inevitably get to, because I'm telling you right now. But the, the idea that the state should be more like the, the kind and rested parent who's had 
adequate coffee and ample food and not the tired and hungry and grumpy parent who just says, because I told you so. It is sort of the gist of the culture of justification. You should be able to articulate why you are doing something and people who are affected by your decision should be entitled to that explanation and that explanation should make sense. And so if that is the culture we are moving towards, um, you know, I think you can, you can frame it in a really broad political sense as consistent with the move away from a, you know, sovereignty vested in an absolute monarch to a more deliberative democratic framework for governance. And part of that would be to expect our decision makers to not just give justifiable decisions, but to in fact justify those decisions. And so Professor Daly says, you know, this culture of justification resonates in Vavilov, most specifically in the explanation of how to conduct the reasonableness review. It's not really in the movement on the standard of review, but it is in the question of what do we mean when we say we're going to look at whether a decision is reasonable. And starts out with the idea, and it says this is kind of the, the star of the analysis, and I've certainly prefigured it several times in this lecture. It's the idea that reasoned decisions must be justified and not just fall within a range of reasonable outcomes. And that gets to that fundamental point that a substantively plausible outcome may nevertheless need to be set aside so that we could achieve this culture of justification. You know, if you say, look, this decision maker was entrusted to do this, they offered no reasons, or those reasons are manifestly deficient and full of logical flaws, but you still have to live with it because I think it's substantively reasonable enough. You know, you, you do not live in a culture of justification necessarily, you're more of a, um, a culture where you're looking just whether something is justifiable, just within the scope of powers, not within the scope of powers and justified. Um, Daly puts it well, as he always does, where he says, if you want to know the difference between Dunsmuir analysis and Navalov analysis, pretty much you could think of it this way. In Dunsmuir, you start with the outcome and you work backwards through the reasons. In Vavilov, you start with the reasons and you work towards the outcome. So, if you're thinking about this culture of justification, you're thinking about the daily article, you want to put your first point with the big star is this idea of reasoned decision making and the need for decisions to themselves be justified. And this gets to an important point where, if you remember, when I put on the board, you know, numerous times my, my courts, judiciary, and executive, 
uh, or sorry, courts legislature and executive. And I said the court's job is just to supervise whether the executive has stayed within the outer realm of the powers given to it by the legislature. I said, well, what is a, why is an unreasonable decision outside of the jurisdiction? It's because there's a presumption the legislature didn't intend to let you make unreasonable decisions. Why is an unfair decision outside of the scope of the executive? Well, there's a presumption the legislature didn't intend to give you the power to make decisions based on an unfair process. I think you could probably add a third thing to this now. You could say, well, why is an unjustified decision outside the scope of the executive? And they've added a presumption that the legislature didn't intend to allow you to make an unjustified decision. This goes sort of um, closely related to, again, with the duty to provide reasons at all. And you'll remember the duty to provide reasons identified in Baker is a fairness concern. It's not a concern around um, the substantive uh, quality of those reasons. It's a concern whether reasons were provided at all. But so now we can say there's also this concern with the substantive quality, which falls within this substantive review but which seems to rest on another presumption. And so could that presumption be rebutted? Absolutely. You could have a statute that explicitly does not require the, the executive to give reasons. If you don't give reasons, then there can't be a presumption that the legislature intended for any decision to be justified, um, you know, likely merely that it's justifiable, i.e. reasonable in light of the um, the legislative scheme at issue, et cetera, et cetera. But it, it does, I think, underscore the degree to which this concern for the reasons themselves and the explanation and the justification offered within those reasons is a pretty big step. It's a big movement in administrative law and one that you, know, you might have some sympathy for the dissent in Babylon or the concurring reasons in Babylon for not having chosen to go along with. So thinking daily, we think the first big point is this idea that we're moving towards not just justifiable, but justified. The second thing that he highlights as a component of this culture of justification is responsiveness. So this is the idea that you don't just need to justify your decisions in a vacuum, but you need to justify your decisions while being responsive to the central issues raised by the parties. So, for example, I have a case that's going to the Court of Appeal in February, and one of the main things I argued before the Administrative Tribunal was, uh, we'll get to it next week, but charter values and expressive rights. And this was about a lawyer's speech, both inside and outside of a courtroom, where he was criticizing an expert, opposing counsel, and the judge, and he was sanctioned by the Law Society for doing so. And I say, you know, you have to consider the charter value of expression when deciding whether or not to sanction this person 
and it, it receives no attention whatsoever. Now, does that mean that the decision is not justifiable outside of the substantive range of possible outcomes that could have been given to this tribunal by the legislature that they didn't explicitly talk about charter values? No. But is it justified in that do I understand in a responsive way why my concerns around expressive rights um, you know, do not uh, dictate that this person not be found to have misconducted themselves professionally? Yeah, I mean, that, that there's, there's a distinction there between these two issues and responsiveness um, you know, requires consideration of the issues that are actually raised by the parties. And again, that gets at the importance of raising those issues directly with the decision maker. You know, it's, it's one thing for me to have said to the law society, consider charter values here, because this is the expressive rights of not just this guy, but all lawyers, you know, need to be able to speak freely and criticize, you know, uh, actors in the justice system without fear of sanction. Um, it's one thing for me to say that to the tribunal, you know, and expect a response. It's another thing if it just is sort of implicitly sort of a live issue, but I never argue it. And then I go to the court and I say, ah, oh, they didn't consider the charter. And the court will say, well, you, you didn't ask him to. You know, so you have to raise things in first instance if you want to sort of grasp this potential problem of a lack of responsiveness. So responsiveness um, sort of shows how the justification of a decision needs to be tied together with the submissions and the presentation that was given to the administrative decision maker, and which also underscores why it's so important that people get you know, good legal help as early as they can in an administrative proceeding because frankly you can just put all the issues in at a minimum and then open up the door to you know, more potential down the line. Um, the third point, and this is one that there is a good question about over the break that Daly talks about is demonstrated expertise. And he, he, he's so smart. And what he says is basically, look, we have, what we do in this Babylon framework is we move away from a presumption of expertise and we move towards a requirement or a desire to have decision makers demonstrate their expertise. So don't tell me simply, ah, this is an expert tribunal. Show me how this tribunal demonstrated their mastery of the subject matter through you know, compelling reasons. So expertise is very much not lost in the analysis so long as the decision maker demonstrates it. So, you know, you think back to poor Professor Macklin getting a hard ride from the court on this question of, you know, the quality of the reasons being a determining factor in what standard of review is to be applied. But certainly the quality of the reasons and the ability to demonstrate expertise goes quite a long way 
in assessing whether the determination is reasonable in and of itself. And if the reasons do show compelling expertise that's brought to bear on this problem, you're going to expect their decisions to much more likely be found to be reasonable. So it's a, again, it's a, it's a somewhat subtle shift, but it's a categorically quite different thing to presume versus look for demonstrations of expertise. Uh, the final thing that Professor Daly highlights as part of this culture of justification is context. And the idea that if you're going to ask for justification, you can't do so in just a one-size-fits-all, blinders-on way. You need to be able to understand the full context within which you are asking for a decision to be justified. You need to know the constraints imposed by the legal and factual context of the decision on review. And this sort of finds itself in not pigeonholing decisions into you know, categories. A categorical approach is sort of the opposite of a contextual approach but rather to say, okay, let's look at everything that was brought to bear, the full factual and legal matrix, and let's assess whether this decision is justified in that framing. Um, you see in the paper, you know, again, a nice articulation of the history of administrative law, which you now probably are a little bit sick of because you've seen it three or four times. I think Daly has a, has a good um, international view, though. He doesn't just talk about Canadian developments, but he, his background is in the UK, and he, he frames it within that context as well. And then he concludes in a lovely way that I think ties you know, the whole project together very, very well. Um, I'm going to read it from, it's a nice long passage, but I think it, if you just get this passage, you probably really get Babelov, uh, at least the way to attack reasonableness. And what he says is, all exercises of public power must be justified by reference to reasoned decisions, with the boundaries of justiciability pushed back dramatically, and the scope of judicial review remedies extended widely. It is moreover implicit, if not explicit, that demonstrated expertise, demonstrated expertise, must be brought to bear by administrative decision makers who seek to justify their decisions. Nowadays, it is not open to the government to say, trust us, we got it right. In addition, administrative decision makers must be responsive, giving individuals an opportunity to participate fully in the decision-making process and changing their approach in hearing, if necessary, a requirement which is most visible in the duty to consult indigenous peoples, but which can be perceived in all areas of public administration. He says, and there are few, if any, rules as such. In contemporary Canadian administrative law, contextual analysis has ousted categorical analysis. In summary, Top-down assertions of authority are insufficient in contemporary administrative law. 
Individuals must be treated with concern and respect, and all areas of governmental activity will be scrutinized in a context-sensitive manner for compliance with the law of judicial review of administrative action. This is the essence of administrative law's culture of justification. So if that all sounded familiar and you understand not just that that's descriptive of where we're at, but that also in many ways represents an evolution from where we have been, then you are, I think, really getting along the, the path of understanding administrative law. If you feel strongly one way or the other, whether this is a good thing or not, then you probably have been bit by the admin law bug and God help you. Um, so I have a few more notes on it, but I'm gonna skip over that and I'm gonna get to the more recent Paul Daly article. Um, he has another word I didn't know before, endogenous. Is that a word people knew? It's like vocab lessons in the reading say. It means arising internally. Um, the more recent Paul Daly article is one that um, I have a link to in the notes if you want to have a look at it. What I like it for is simply it's a taking stock of where we're at that's you know really as contemporary as you're gonna find. And one thing that he is sort of happy to report from his you know, careful study of, I would imagine, you know, a significant portion of the case that is cited Babylon, is that courts do seem to be alive to the slippery slope towards correctness review that this highly contextual reasonableness framework um, you know, may pose a threat to. So he has a uh, a quotation from a decision of Justice Stratus of the Federal Court of Appeal. I mentioned Justice Stratus a few times. You know, again, I would say he's, um, now that Justice Abella is no longer a judge, he's the leading Canadian administrative law judge, him and Justice Evans. And so he says, in Vavilov, Justice Stratus says, the Supreme Court tells us that we should not be too hasty to find flaws. Vavilov's requirement of a reasoned explanation cannot be applied in a way that transforms reasonableness review into correctness review. If reviewing courts are too fussy and adopt the attitude of a literary critic all too willing to find shortcomings, they will be conducting correctness review, not reasonableness review. That would return us to the bad old days in the 60s and 70s where reviewing courts would come up with any old excuse to strike down decisions they disliked and often did. So I think he's directly being responsive to Justices Karakatsanis and Abella in this type of a passage and saying, look, if we're careful in how we apply this reasonableness review, we are not going to oust the, um, the modern conception of the rule of law and return to a court-centric view. But we have to be aware of that slippery slope and we have to not be too, I love the image of the literary critic, just nitpicking little problems with decisions and that is not the task. So I think that that is a, 
a good passage. If you want the site, that's um, it's in the notes, but it's a case called Mason from the Federal Court of Appeal 2021, FCA 156. And it's a, a nice summation of the threat and a nice reminder that you know we need not go down that road while still being faithful to Babylon, that we don't need to return to the battle days if we apply this reasonableness analysis you know, as it was intended by the court, which is not the fussy literary critic. And where Daly gets to is he says, look, what I see is decision makers who previously gave reasoned decisions and were careful, finding very little change post-Babylon. It's kind of the same. Who's having a problem? It's decision makers who previously issued scant or very uh, tossed off, quickly thought out reasons. The Professor Daly notes a, a case called um, uh, Bodouin in British Columbia, where there was a series of public health measures, you know, COVID public health measures, and they're upheld because the provincial health officer set out a reasoned decision based on evidence that was sensitive to the impacts on rights and freedoms. And he says, pre-Babylon, would you really expect a public health officer to have a lengthy and reasoned decisions that are balancing you know, public freedoms and these sorts of things? Maybe not. You may be seeing already the culture of justification being recognized by administrative decision makers and being brought to bear in their work. And so this gets back to this um, you know, this push and pull that we talked about a number of times where when you demand more from administrative decision makers, uh, you may get better decisions, you may get more readily accepted decisions, you also have the potential of an added burden on those decision makers, it may be more difficult to take the time to write reasoned decisions. The court has said that's a, a burden we're willing to shoulder, we want those reasoned decisions. And if the decision makers are taking the time to write reasoned decisions, he's finding very little change in the deference and the law of judicial review as it applies post Vavilov to the actual outcome of their decision being overturned or not. Those, but those other decision makers who weren't previously taking the time, they're the ones who are having difficulties. Um, this you know, ties back into a point we saw previously. I think when we were watching the Babylon hearing, I think I showed you the clip. If not, I'll tell you that the amicus, um, the regent from the University of Montreal, his name is escaping me right now, he made the point that, do I expect the type of move that, you know, the he was advocating for and the court accepted will lead to a requirement of reasons in more circumstances? He said, absolutely, yes. I think there will be more decision makers who are now having to offer compelling reasons. And certainly that is, I think, uh, borne out through Daly's work as well, his research as well. You want to remember that 
you know, this whole culture of justification framework of Babylon does sit uneasily with the idea there are decision makers who are not obliged to give reasons at all. Um, and I do think that the, the expectation is that more of those decision makers are gonna be found to be obliged to give reasons or may choose to give reasons uh, sort of consistent with the broader cultural shift towards this justification. But you should remember also that there is that passage in Babylon explaining you know, how to approach review in the absence of reason, something that will, I think, be, um, be the subject of much more careful consideration by the Supreme Court when the opportunity is presented. A um, couple loose things to, to tie off with Vavilov, um, important questions that are uh, left sort of outstanding. One is, does Babylon apply to internal appeals within the administrative scheme? So remember the Workers' Compensation Board decides tons of workers' compensation cases, but there's an appeal to the Workers' Compensation Appeal Tribunal. Does that now get the Housen and Nicolaisen standard? Does that get you know, a Babylon sort of reasonableness standard? And what Daly says is not necessarily either, that there is a broad scope of different statutory internal appeals that contemplate different standards. And you may get internal appeals that clearly contemplate um, a de novo rehearing new evidence, throw out the previous decision. You may get statutory appeals that imply a highly deferential, limited review to questions of law alone or something like that. And so he says you can't fit internal appeal mechanisms within administrative schemes into any one particular box. Another interesting thing coming out of Vavilov, which I'll, I'll leave you on, and. Uh, had some excellent questions about this, is what, how do you reconcile the idea that where there's a limited statutory appeal, like Legal Professions Act, you can bring an appeal if you're the law society on a question of law alone. How do you reconcile that when there's this passage in Vavilov that says, you can also bring a judicial review in the face of a limited right of appeal. The fact that I say you have a right of appeal on questions of law alone doesn't mean that any question of fact is insulated from review at all. The question is, procedurally, how do you go about doing that? And Daly has found three instances where that problem has arisen. And the courts have grappled with it in different ways. Um, in essence, what they have done is they've said, we will do a judicial review and a statutory appeal, and we will hear them together. And we will apply the Vavilov standard to the statutory appeal, and we will apply the, um, or sorry, the House of Nicolaisen, the pallet standard, the statutory appeal, and we will do an ordinary Babylon framework for the questions of fact. 
It's a very difficult and unwieldy process, uh, but that's how the courts have, have grappled with that. There's an even further contemplation with the Legal Professions Act, for example, where the appeal goes to the Court of Appeal and the Judicial Review would go to the DC Supreme Court. And so where daily lands is in essence, this is a problem that's gonna require the legislatures to go back and respond to Vavilov to figure out a process that will allow for this type of a review to occur. Uh, but it's a, an outstanding procedural problem that Daly comments on, which I thought I might bring up because it you know, underscores again the way there's unsettled important questions left remaining. So I, I kind of sped through that because I saw an opportunity to get through my notes today for once. Um, are there any questions about any of that last? Yeah, and I, th that's a question that's a hard one, and it seems like the answer is no. If you want the appellate standard, you do it. You have to have the mechanism of a statutory appeal to do so. Um, all right, well, thank you very much then. So next class, we'll talk about the competing lines of jurisdiction, and then we will, um, I'll, I'll set the stage for the charter issues, which hopefully will make the reading um, easier for next week. Okay, thank you very much. Mm -hmm.